situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Me. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? The castration of the major league baseball managers. We know it. Ask me about my winner. Morning, everybody. Another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, in a little bit, I'm going to touch on the coaching situation when it comes to college football. Um, reasons that I'm against the, w- the way things go, you know, the commitment that coaches make when it comes to the program that they end up representing and becoming a face of and how they turn their backs on it. But obviously, we're getting pretty close to the lockout when it comes to the collective bargaining agreement and baseball expiring on December 1st. And I think the transactions that you're seeing in baseball are reflecting that, where teams want to get what they they want in regards to upgrading their teams up before there's a transaction freeze. And I'll start out the program by uh, eating crow from the last show that I did when I basically talked about how, you know what, teams may be shying away. Teams with higher aspirations when it comes to spending more money may not spend money for the reason of the upcoming lockout and not knowing what is going to be on the other side. Is there going to be an unlimited, uh, I don't know, salary number that a team can go to without being penalized for? Could there be the abolishment of the luxury tax and its threshold? All things that have to be thought of when it comes to this upcoming um, collective bargaining agreement. I was wrong. Obviously, the money that's being thrown around as it applies to baseball right now is, is unheard of. We're probably having within the last 24, 48 hours one of the busiest stretches in an offseason in Major League Baseball history. Obviously, the money is a big deal. There's a chance, as we're looking at the high-profile shortstops, which ones are left. Yeah, There's obviously Carlos Correa. Obviously, you look at some of the other ramifications when it comes to, let's say, a Freddie Freeman, a Marcus Stroman. In all honesty, we're looking at at probably stuff that's all going to be tabled for after Major League Baseball players and the owners get together and agree on their next collective bargaining agreement. Now, I go back to 1994 for a reason. And obviously, you're looking at the work stoppage that happened then, which ended up costing Major League Baseball and... uh, you know, it's fans, the 1994 season, which ended up costing them a postseason for the first time in exactly 90 years. I had a hard time getting through that as a young baseball fan, as somebody that aspires to be in a, a similar position to what I am. Um, I, I, it really broke my heart. And certainly the impacts on the Yankees of 1994, but most importantly, the Montreal Expos, a franchise that ends up pretty much having their one opportunity to make a run for the World Series that year, and it didn't happen. But 1994 isn't really what I wanted to talk about. The only similarity is where is the fault or the blame? Because if you're not either the players or the owners and bound or biased to what your opinion and point of view is, then where does the blame necessarily go 
in this situation. The players are trying to win you over by saying, oh, you know what? Our minor league players aren't getting the respect. They're not treated properly. And obviously the conditions of where they're living, this is all stuff that has been changed within the last year and it's been changed in a positive way. Uh, minor league players are going to have housing provided by teams now, which I think is something that's great for baseball. But now we look when we're, going, we're talking about players that have not made it to the major leagues yet. Are we going to raise minor league salaries to the point where players are just rewarded for playing professional baseball? Now, I, I, to that point, I actually disagree with. I think there should be some sort of standards or a difference between playing minor league baseball and major league baseball. Going back to the ghost of Christmas past, which I always like to do in baseball history, you're, we could go back to the 50s and the 40s when the Pacific Coast League and the International League had almost as much drawing power as Major League Baseball. And imagine that. Imagine minor league players being able to get paid enough by playing minor league baseball that they don't have to ever play in the major leagues. There's a difference between the major leagues and the minor leagues. And that's why the best of the best players, as you see in free agency right now, get rewarded with the tremendous contracts that they have at this given moment. So I have a hard time saying, hey, salaries of minor league players should go up. Now, baseball and its players are also contending that players, once they get to the major leagues, they have a minimum salary of you know 500 something thousand, 600 something thousand, and it progressively grows until they reach arbitration years. The claim that this isn't fair to the players. But on the other side, if you look at where these players come, you're not you're not even talking about the best of the best players being rewarded with ridiculous contracts in Major League Baseball. So am I having a hard time at this moment siding with the players? I think it's very easy to. You could be pro player and say that, hey, a great player that's the rookie of the year in a given season doesn't necessarily get a reward for being rookie of the year. If you want to put something in there to say, hey, if you receive rookie of the year votes, if you are the rookie of the year, you could get some kind of bonus. Listen, I'm all in favor of that. But the same progression as it exists in baseball allows for players that do it over a long period of time to get compensated the way these players do. And to see Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon and Javier Baez and Max Scherzer and you know any player, and, and I'll take Max Scherzer out of it for a minute because he's, he's already had a long seven-year contract. He's reaped the rewards of going through the arbitration process and before that, uh, the renewing of his contract for the first three years. Now, you could be against it, but I don't think it's necessarily the way to go in baseball. Should we all of a sudden bring a player up to the major leagues and sign him to a long-term contract? You're seeing a lot of the better players are getting that right off the bat. You know, the Fernando Tatises, you know, players like that that are getting that long-term contracts that are starting from their first year of getting into the big leagues. And I'm okay with that. This is stuff that's been being controlled and being handled and does not necessarily warrant a lockout and a freeze of transactions, which we're going to see in less than what, 36 hours? Midnight, December 1st, or you know, December 2nd, as it goes from December 1st to December 2nd, when the collective bargaining agreement expires, 
I don't think this is good for baseball. I'm not looking forward to this. I don't know how it's going to end. I think conventional wisdom says that the players and the owners are not as far apart as they were in 1994. And because of that, hey, there'll be a little bit of a work stoppage, but in the end, cooler heads will prevail. Perhaps the 2022 baseball season is not in danger. And I don't think there's anybody at this moment that believes that it's in danger right now. I'd be a little fearful. I'd be a little fearful of where the owners want to draw the line in the sand. And the players, which, yes, have the right to look out for every player, not just the player on a $300 million contract. It's not like your average salary in Major League Baseball is garbage. And the stupidest tweet that I saw, and listen, I could throw stupid tweets out with the best of them. But the one that said, hey, you basically go from eating ramen noodles in six years to a $100 million contract. You're telling me like five, six hundred grand a year is, is not good when it comes to how to make a living? Now, you want to raise the minimum salary in Major League Baseball? I don't have a problem with it. You want to set something up to where players can be better covered over their renewing years and by renewing years I mean the first couple of years that they're in the, ma in the major leagues and the team could just renew their salary for the next season I'm okay with some modifications but to say that players with less than one year of experience should go out there and get you know five to ten million twenty million a season I don't know how that necessarily works and it's it's also a little bit of a hypocrisy because you're looking at how the good players get paid for what they've done in the past. Think about the major contracts when players hit free agency that they end up getting. The Albert Pujolses of the world, the Alex Rodriguez's of the world, the Robinson Cano's of the world. We could talk about how in the back end of those contracts, they're bad deals. But what were they signed for initially? They were signed for what they've done in the past, mostly, in addition to what they're doing in the future. So Albert Pujols, when he signed that 10-year contract with the Los Angeles Angels, signed because of what he accomplished in the past, and he earned that deal, and partially he was getting compensated for the years of success that he had as a Major League Baseball player before. So are we going to have any modifications to that? Are we going to have the players all of a sudden saying, yeah, you know what? We shouldn't sign 10-year contracts where the end of the deals kind of go in the shitter. I have a hard time with that. And I don't think the players come off very well here. I understand where you want all players protected. You want minor league baseball players to have a better way of living, which I think is already getting addressed. You want players with limited service time get the opportunity to earn more money. But then nothing's being done on the other end for the players who continue to get richer and richer. There's nothing that's going to keep Corey Seager from signing his 10-year deal. There's nothing that's going to stop Max Scherzer at age 37 for getting $130 million over three seasons without the guarantee that they're going to perform to the entirety of their contract. Listen, uh, one of the major differences between baseball and football is football's contracts are not 100% guaranteed. And if a player does not fulfill the obligations of their contract, they can be cut without the guarantee that their parent club has to pay the entirety of their contract. 
I'm not suggesting that baseball goes there, but it's another advantage that the players at Major League Baseball have over other sports, particularly football. So I don't think we're ever going to go to the stage of non-guaranteed contracts in baseball, but I think the players could probably look in the mirror and realize that they are getting a lot already. And status quo for them may not necessarily be too bad. You know, it's not like the owners are colluding together like the 1980s and keeping players from being able to sign. Now, there's other issues in regards to the upcoming CBA that have to be addressed. Certainly, the issues as they exist, whether we should have a, a larger playoff format, which I hope they don't. Um, in the end, I know it makes more money for baseball, but to have more playoff teams, I just don't think I don't think baseball needs that. That's my opinion. Listen, it's not gonna it's not gonna have any bearing on what's going on with the CBA. I, I don't like the thought of expanded playoffs, but you know when you think of of the upcoming CBA and some of the issues that that exist amongst the players and the owners, salaries, yes, the luxury tax. Uh, should there be a salary floor? But obviously one of the major things that should be addressed is teams tanking. Teams giving up. Teams quitting because of their quote-unquote market size and going on these uh, uh, you know, extravagant rebuilds and why certain teams shouldn't have to have a payroll up to a certain level. That's a difference with football, basketball, hockey. Every team's in the mix because, number one, there's a salary cap. But also, the fact that every team, you know, looks to have a payroll in about the same area. And if I could make one suggestion, and I don't know how it would work, and the players have already been blessed with so much, the owners are already kind of happy with baseball, a status quo, and the way things are. But how about do something to keep all teams within the same parameters when it comes to the amount of money that they spend? Now, I know players may never go for a salary cap, but if we raise the, the, the amount, maybe put it up to $300 million, but set the salary floor at about $150 million or $170 million. You know how much more money that does for baseball and raises salaries with players for teams that have no interest in having $150 to $170 million payroll? I don't know. But I think the more of these issues that get brought up, I don't know if we're going to have answers within a couple days or a couple weeks. I don't see any progression as we get closer to this deadline of December 1st. I don't think things are getting any better. This lockout could last a little more than we anticipate. Now, the last show that I'm going to do before the potential lockout, and uh, you know, I'll do a show Friday before I get on the plane and head down to Orlando for the baseball winter meetings. Obviously, a different type of baseball winter meetings with uh, no Major League Baseball going on. With the players locked out, it's going to be centered around the minor leagues, but also centered on you know meeting people and uh, you know getting yourself in a position to hopefully get that next job. But you know, I think now is a time to kind of enjoy the free agent signings that we've looked at right now. And like I said, I'm willing to be the first to eat crow. I was wrong when I, I, I suggested that there wouldn't be such a big run on free agents, which you've seen really over the last 48 hours or so. I'm shocked that the Mets ended up getting Max Scherzer, but 
here's here's the here's the point that I want to make about it. I think we were misled when it comes to what Max Scherzer was willing and able to do when it comes to free agency this year. Now, listen, I get that his agent Scott Boris. And Scott Boris pushes for the money. Max Scherzer, a pro-union guy, union head type, that you know feels the need to earn as much in his next contract to rise salary, raise salaries up to where they are right now. So all of that makes sense, and all of that was on the table before any sort of these negotiations came into place. But as the trading deadline hit last year, there was a false narrative that Max Scherzer wanted to be on the West Coast. Now listen, I think he approved the Dodgers trade. I don't think he had any issue being in L.A. I don't think he would have been against coming back if the Dodgers had stepped up to the table or the Angels or any team out there on the West Coast. But false narrative number one was that Max Scherzer was only open to playing for teams that played on the West Coast. False narrative number two was his reported unwillingness to want to play in New York or for the Mets. Now, some of that had to do with the fact that he spent six-plus years with the Washington Nationals. I'm sure he enjoyed beating the Mets. He threw a no-hitter against the Mets. He led the Nationals to a World Series in a division that included the Mets. So as a player on a rival team, I'm sure he wasn't necessarily in love with the idea of leaving Washington to going to the Mets. So I understand how that applies when it comes to the trading deadline last year. Now, in free agency... That was proven to be wrong. In the end, the Mets were the one that, that stepped up, offered the most money, and almost unexpectedly ended up getting the best pitcher amongst free agency. Now, if you're a Mets fan, you've got to be ecstatic for having Max Scherzer there with Jacob DeGrom. And it certainly puts the Mets in a position where they're a better baseball team than they were prior to the signing of Max Scherzer. You look at the Texas Rangers. They make the signing of Marcus Simeon, but then double down when they get Corey Seager, sign John Gray. I know Cole Calhoun is only a one-year deal for about $5 million, but you're looking at, at, what, over a half a billion dollars that the Texas Rangers have committed in salaries for this upcoming season. And you know my weakness. I've stated it on this program before. I'm a weakness for that team that has that big offseason. I'm a believer. I believed in the Padres maybe one or two many times when it comes to the offseason that they've built up and the disappointments that they, they ended up having. The Mets in 1992, the Mets in 2002, the Lakers of this year. You can talk about the many examples that I've taken to bait and saying, hey, this team's going to do better than we expect. They're going from the slums to you know Hollywood, per se, and are going to end up being a contender I'm probably falling for it again when it comes to the Texas Rangers. I'll admit that. That being said, if you're a bad team in baseball, what exactly are you expected to do? The Orioles and the the like of teams like that that have been bad for years, they're not active in free agency. They seem to be waiting for their own young players to develop and become a core. But being out of free agency does not necessarily make that rebuilding team look any good. So it's kind of hypocritical when you blame 
let's say, the Orioles for not doing anything in free agency for years, and then you also blame the Rangers for being a bad team and jumping out there saying, listen, we're going to get the cream of the crop when it comes to free agency, and our expectations are that we're going to build this a little bit quicker. Well, the Rangers have developed some young players. They drafted you know, Jack Leiter, right? They got some good young players. Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon ain't going anywhere for a while. Why don't you have something nice for them, the young players, to work themselves into? And in doing so, maybe raise expectations for the next coming season. I don't have any issue with what the Rangers did. I don't have any issue with the Detroit Tigers, Eduardo Rodriguez. It looks like they're going to get Javier Baez. The Tigers, I think, overachieved more than most teams in baseball. Maybe not named the, the Giants and the Rays. I think they're in a great position. They got good young players. Sure, work a Erod in there. Work a Javi Baez in there with the young players. And build yourself a team and make a run. Don't do what the Orioles are doing. Because I don't think anybody knows what the Orioles are doing at this point. Last thing, number three, I wanted to get into. And I wanted to spend some time on this today. Um, college football. Obviously, you're talking about uh, the importance of major programs having their next college football head coach. And the value of a college football head coach, I think, is even stronger than that of the head coach in the National Football League. You're talking about the face of your program. You're talking about somebody that you're putting in those shoes and saying, listen, if things haven't gone well, well, now the expectations are going to be raised because we got our guy. And obviously, the importance of the head coach and their ability to recruit, bring players in, and the responsibility they have single-handedly of turning the program around are, are all reasons why the head coach of a college football team, and you may say college basketball too, is the most important head coaching position in all of sports. You watched LSU pry Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly away. You obviously had Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma to head to USC. And it's not like it's the first time that this has happened. But you have Lincoln Riley in Oklahoma, who's had a lot of success there. And obviously Oklahoma, a nationally renowned school where players, you know, high school players, can't wait to go to college and want to wanna play for Oklahoma. And you look at the development of guys like Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray and Jalen Hurts all of whom ended up going to the NFL and are now starting quarterbacks currently in the league. And Oklahoma going to the SEC. Now, the level of competition was supposed to increase for Oklahoma. So by bailing on Oklahoma, is Lincoln Riley looking to, I don't know, maybe leave at the right time? And then, of course, you got... The overnight situation with Brian Kelly negotiating at LSU and coming to an agreement and then kind of not really knowing how to address his player. So he decides to go to a group text. Here's the issue that I want to get into. These head coaches are the faces of programs. Players come from all over the country, not necessarily for the school and the experience, not necessarily for the girls and the pursuing of a degree, not necessarily getting themselves ready for the potential of playing in a National Football League. In more cases than not, they come for the coach. They come because they want to be part 
of what the coach is building. Hundreds of players make commitments for no other reason than their belief in the head coach. And you have in Oklahoma and you have in Notre Dame hundreds of players, either current or upcoming you know, recruits that have agreed to pursue their further education in Oklahoma and Notre Dame respectively that have done so because of Lincoln Riley and Brian Kelly. Now, sometimes you say, hey, it's tough luck. It's part of the business. And as often as this has happened when it comes to uh, players, you know, thinking they're going to play for a certain coach and realizing that that coach ain't there, you know, if any of these coaches performed badly, they could lose their job and the kids would have a different head coach anyway. I'm all respective or respectful to all those points of views. That being said, I suggest that college football and college basketball, mostly college football, should think about implementing some sort of deadline or some sort of free agency period, perhaps. Because we understand that coaches are going to jump from school to school. These are things that have happened for years and uh, you know, unless there's some sort of ban on it, I don't think there's any way that this is ever going to stop. So when you're in this spot, exactly what is it that can be done? How do you keep Brian Kelly from flat leaving his players? I don't care how good of a job he did as a coach this year. I don't care how much his players love him. The players feel abandoned. The players think it's bullshit that he went out there and negotiated a deal with another school while he was still coaching at Notre Dame. Notre Dame's still in the BCS. There's still a chance that they could be one of the top four teams playing for a national championship this year. And now they have to do it knowing that their coach up and quit on them. I think it's bullshit. You may not agree with me, but I don't think it's right for those players to have to go through that. There should be something that's implemented. Maybe a, I don't know, a period where you could say, I don't know, bet between the end of the season and the defined bowl games. You know, there could be negotiations amongst current head coaches for a certain team. I mean, even not even thinking about the contract value. Lincoln Riley signed a contract to be the head coach of Oklahoma. Brian Kelly signed a contract to be the head coach at Notre Dame. Their contracts didn't run out. They weren't unemployed. I think there is a way. Maybe leaving the possibility and maybe putting major sanctions against teams that negotiate with, con with coaches that are under contract in season. Maybe you wait till the end of the regular season and say, hey, from the end of the regular season till the bowl games. Once the bowl games are announced or the BCS playoffs format is set, I don't know. But, I mean, to me, this, this is for the players. I think the players deserve better, but also the representation of the school. Like, how does Brian Kelly coach again for Notre Dame? Maybe he doesn't. But what does that do for a Notre Dame team that's trying to win a national championship? Listen, in the end, I think the players can determine who the national champion is. But when your coach flat leaves you in the middle of the season, it puts Notre Dame at a disadvantage. And if Oklahoma was up there within the top four, and I don't know if Notre Dame could be a top four team, 
but they can be certainly if Cincinnati loses. You know, you think about if if Alabama loses to Georgia this coming weekend, which is a distinct possibility. Do they end up slipping in? Yeah, maybe. And if they do, they are at an extreme disadvantage because of something that could have been prevented. If LSU knew that they weren't going to be able to recruit players for the next two years, if they took a coach from another school in season, I think there's a chance they might have waited. And if you set a deadline, all right, after the regular season, after the bowl games and the BCS, uh, you know, playoff is all set up, then I think it's a little easier. And you say, all right, well, maybe in the bowl games, the you know, the Brian Kellys don't coach. Okay. This is a team still competing for a national championship right now, and I don't think it's right. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Quick recap of the show before we get going. Like I said, we'll be back with you early Friday before I, I jump the plane and head over to Orlando, where the baseball winter meetings are going to be held during the expected lockout, which is going to start at midnight December 1st going into December 2nd. A little bit of the show was talking about that, ramifications of this lockout. You know, it's very hard to be pro player in this particular instance. The players, you know, are, are getting paid ridiculously. And it's not like they're poor once they get to the major leagues. I mean, am I going to boo-hoo over a player making 600000 in their second or third year? You know, yes, maybe out there putting up MVP or Cy Young or Gold Glove numbers. Listen, I think there should be a way for teams to negotiate. And you look at it, you know, an Acuna who may not have gotten the best deal, but you look at some of the other contracts, the Tatis deal, how these players are going to get compensated more sooner. I think baseball is already going in that direction. I mean, for the players to fight to a point where they're going to be locked out in less than 48 hours, I don't, I, I don't, I don't agree with it. I think this could be avoided, and I wonder once the lockout happens how much the owners and the players are going to put their toes in the sand, and perhaps we could be talking about a lengthier lockout than is anticipated. I have an issue with that, so that's number one. Number two, obviously I'm eating some crow when it comes to my prediction about Major League Baseball free agency being a little bit slow. It obviously picked up. I think teams are like, and really all it took was a player or two. You know, Marcus Simeon signing the deal with the Texas Rangers kind of got things going. The Mets had their night when they signed Eduardo Escobar and Marcana and Starling Marte. Obviously added a Max Scherzer on top of it. You know, the Rangers adding Corey Seager and John Gray to go with Simeon and Cole Calhoun. The Tigers, who got Erod before, end up jumping in there to get Javier Baez. There's some teams that are pretty aggressive, that they want the answer to their offseason to be taken care of before December 1st. I think there's a lot of teams that also have that approach that I was talking about last week when it came to waiting a little bit. Maybe there's going to be enough. The Freddie Freemans and the Correas and the Trevor Stories and the Marcus Strowmans, assuming that they're not signed, will all be there on the other side for these other teams to, to, to wait for. Now, the lockout's also going to provide some discussion, some analysis, amongst 
any individual team in their own uh, front office to come up with a game plan. When baseball restores, I think there's going to be another another spending spree for teams that have identified exactly what it is that they're looking for and maybe terms that they're exactly looking for. And the players on the other side, whether it's two months, three months, hopefully it's not four months with this lockout, players that are chomping in a bit to get their name on a contract to determine their future. The last thing I spoke about today was the college football head coach situation in Carousel. I didn't mention this. I mean, if Urban Meyer ends up leaving Jacksonville, the Jaguars, in the NFL after one season to go coach Notre Dame, I get that it's a prestigious job. I get that if you look at Urban Meyer and you know Ohio State and prior to that, you know, at Florida, the success that he's had and to restore Notre Dame and win a national championship. I, I get all the reasons why it would make sense. It would just be a terrible look. Um, you know, Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly, I get that they're moving up in the world. You know, the whole cue to theme song for the Jeffersons, moving on up to the east side. Fish don't fry in the kitchen, beans don't burn on the grill. I get it. I understand all of that. But you think of the kids and the the college football kids that are in these particular schools, Oklahoma, Notre Dame, and you know, insert any college football program that their good, established, and well-known head coach has bailed on them in season. The reason they're there, you could say it's some of it's because of the girls, some of it's because of the college life, some of it's because of the education, some of it's because of the stepping stone to get to the National Football League. Yes, they're all considerations. The main reason is the head coach. The head coach is out there doing the recruiting. The head coach is the reason that these players end up going to these schools. And Brian Kelly bailed on his players at Notre Dame. Lincoln Riley bailed on his players in Oklahoma. Perhaps the NCAA and college football could do a better job of curtailing that. Maybe setting a deadline saying, listen, coaches can't leave. They can't go from school to school. If there's any evidence that there's any sort of agreement before the end of the regular season, that team will or that school will lose the ability to recruit players for the first two seasons that that coach is there. That's a big deal. And I think that could keep Brian Kelly at Notre Dame while the team's still competing for a national championship. And that bothers me. We'll be back with you on Friday, like I said, before we go to the baseball winter meetings in Orlando. Um, don't really know what the show schedule is going to be as we get there. Um, like I said, Friday we'll do a show. We'll go down there to Orlando. Maybe we'll do some interviews. Hopefully I'll wind up getting a job. Until then, God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side. Chris Pride was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the freaking World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on in my life. Now they come out as the biggest Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park. Not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. 
Two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Connie Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and a ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100%, unequivocally, that pitcher was throwing at They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told.